Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. We begin with acquisition. The Office of Federal Procurement Policy turns 50 years old this year. While the federal acquisition community has come a long way since 74, the next few years, let alone the next 50, will be all about the acquisition workforce. Christine Harada is the senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. She tells executive editor Jason Miller about the Biden administration's acquisition workforce priorities for this year and beyond. Number one, ensuring that we've got the appropriate people and that we're equipping them and supporting them and ensuring that we're developing them appropriately, that we're also further strengthening and and diversifying the supplier base, because if you don't have good market participants, like we're just not going to get the good kind of services that we as a federal agencies and our government enterprises need in order to be able to provide good solutions to the taxpayers, well, citizens who are on the receiving end. And again, last but not least, What's all underlying all of that is the data. And so I think a lot of the work that we're, the groundwork that we're going to be laying this year around ensuring that much more centralized data management strategies and sharing that is something that we are looking to focus on. We're working to build our best inspired, engaged acquisition workforce. And this, of course, requires an environment that attracts new talent and offers modern training and development opportunities where the acquisition workforce members actually build communities both inside and across federal agencies through networking and other learning opportunities. And the new certification process, the FACC or the Federal Acquisition Certification and Contracting Guidance, Christine's personal view is truly transformative because it establishes a common set of technical and professional competencies for both DOD and civilian agencies. And we're finally going to have parity with the DOD contracting professional certification, and that'll help facilitate mobility between DOD, civilian agencies, and industries. So truly very excited about that. Let's talk a little bit about that FACSE modernization effort because this is something that you know really OFPP kicked off back in January. Now, like anything else, it takes a while to kind of really ramp up. What are some of those things you're seeing from it? What's the impact, even in the short time, that you're seeing it having on the acquisition community? The implementation is going well, firstly. So the civilian agency contracting professionals and their leadership have been very supportive and very enthusiastic about this new certification. Everyone who's had the legacy contracting certification was automatically given the new certification so that the new classes and exam targets folks that are newer to the government or new to the contracting career field. And of course, once folks have the certification, they can get training at the time of need. So very much, much more just-in-time training kind of a model. They're able to chart their own career path all in conjunction, of course, with the supervisors. And our folks can already also take many of the DOD credentials as well. And so the senior procurement execs are super excited that we will soon have that parity and we're tracking the progress of the new certification through metrics on the number of training classes that are taken, how many exams have been taken, what's the pass rate of the exam, et cetera. And we're constantly communicating with our acquisition workforce community at all levels to ensure that we're understanding the impact that it is, the desired impact is actually being felt amongst the workforce and ensuring that it meets the needs of all of the agencies. Can you go through some of those statistics or the measurements in terms of people taking them, pass rate, anything that stands out to you as to kind of show the impact? Because, again, I think a lot of this is it's great that you have it, but are people, you know, you can lead them to water, but are you making them drink, so to speak? 
Yes, absolutely. So the numbers are still very preliminary. You know, we've got well over, I think the number is over 700 people that have uh, engaged in a lot of these trainings thus far. I don't know about the pass rates. I'd have to actually look that up, but that is, we're certainly seeing that in the numbers and they're ticking up in the right direction. One thing that came through just doing some research is the number of acquisition workers across the government is probably at the highest it's been in, in more than a decade. Do you think that because we've seen more people come in, and, and I know there's a lot of concern about the age, right? Jeff Kosas over at GSA uh, told me, you know, they have four times as many people over 60 than under 30 in, in the Federal Acquisition Service, and that's, that's a big concern for them. Do you get a sense that this modernization effort and, and the, is really driving kind of the type of change in, in the acquisition workforce that more people want to be a part of it, want to stay longer because they realize the good work they're doing? And, and this fact C is one example of of how you all are changing to meet them where they are? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, I that was an issue, certainly the dumbbell, if you will, of the distribution of the acquisition workforce, absolutely an issue. Uh, when I was in the Obama administration working at GSA and also still continues to be somewhat of an issue, although I don't think it's as dire as it was eight years ago. I'm also really excited by the advances that are being made to create a much more innovation-friendly acquisition environment. Again, back to the, you know, the technology evolution and the way, the degree to which that is now fundamentally really powering a lot of the way that we're delivering services to our citizens. You know, for example, when I was here during the Obama administration, during the healthcare.gov crisis, I remember hearing so many complaints about how inflexible the acquisition process is. And, you know, as you know, as well as anybody else, there's actually a lot of flexibility but there weren't as many efforts to encourage or capture that kind of innovative thinking. And so thankfully, that's changing with a number of innovation labs and safe spaces, a robust knowledge management portal with the periodic table of acquisition innovations. And I do think that demographically speaking, the you know the more junior or the newer contracting folks who tend to be a little bit more technology savvy are much more embracing of these types of, of efforts. And I can't overstate the potential here. If you look at the periodic table of acquisition innovation or the PTAI, you'll see all sorts of examples of how our buyers are reducing, you know, bid and proposal costs. They're shortening time from proposal submission to award and efforts to promote that innovative mindset that values creative thinking, outcomes and risk management over just a rigid compliance kind of framework is really contributing to that greater sense of empowerment to problem solve uh, within the acquisition workforce. Just kind of occurred to me as as, as I'm thinking about all, all the work you have and laying out the acquisition of the future. OFPP and, and the FAR Council have been incredibly busy publishing some new rules, proposed rules lately. From your perspective, what is really standing out to you among all this action and, and effort that's going on from the FAR Council and how that's driving changes in the acquisition community? So there's a couple of areas where I think you know we're really trying to push forward on. And firstly, mission first, people always. The FAR Council staff are amazing. And I'm very grateful that we've got a stellar workforce that's supporting a lot of the rulemaking efforts. We published three cybersecurity-related FAR rules. There were two proposed rules uh, required by an executive order for improving the nation's cybersecurity and an interim rule to facilitate implementation of the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Act of 2018 uh, to ensure that we're supporting agency supply chain risk information sharing. If those changes are required or necessary to ensure that the proper frameworks are in place to ensure that we're supporting that kind of information sharing, both you know across across federal agencies as well as with our industrial data, industrial base, um, but also effectively implementing any orders, exclusion or removal orders, you know, and ensuring that there's an actual process to be able to do that as well. 
The second big area, you know, in alignment with the Biden-Harris administration's priorities is around sustainability and climate, addressing the climate crisis that we've got. You know, as you may have heard, in August, we announced the latest step to leverage the federal government's procurement power to create jobs, advance American innovation, and building sustainable federal supply chains through the Sustainable Products and Services Procurement Rule. That will help achieve the president's goal of net zero emissions from federal procurement by 2050. And we've also closed a public comment period for uh, another sustainable procurement rule. And of course, we have the disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risk rule, uh, where the largest suppliers will be required to publicly disclose their GHG emissions. And I think that you know, these are the very much the areas where I see us within the OFPP and the acquisition community writ large playing a very close partnership role with our agency frontline mission counterparts to be able to ensure that we're delivering on these priorities and ensuring that we're delivering value for the American people. Christine Harada, senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, 
just to name a few, and you have an amazing career, what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, 
go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. 
there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.